the difference between successful people and non-successful people is they feel the exact same way, but they just act differently. Welcome to Profession Session. I'm your host, Brody Vinson. And in this show, I highlight professionals of all different industries, whether they be corporate stars, entrepreneurs, or business owners, and talk about the things that have allowed them to be successful so quickly in their field. Today, I have Bianca Rist with me. Hi. Bianca, thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to get into this. You have a very interesting career to talk about. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to do this. So. Absolutely. Well, I think uh, the best place to always start is just kind of how you first started in your career. And I know for you, that was medical sales at first. It was. So it's interesting. I got my degree in broadcast journalism, hated it, <laughs> got out, I actually did my internship here at Channel 4. I was working as a receptionist at a skilled nursing facility and ran into like one of the medical sales directors. And I said, you know, I'm, I have a degree but nobody will hire me. I don't have the experience. You know, how do I work with you? And I did the interview, got in and I did medical sales for a while and I learned a lot. I was very awkward at first, but I learned a lot about talking to people and getting my foot in the door and getting to the decision makers and selling in general. So it, it really actually set a, a very good foundation for what I do now and what I've done. And towards the end of my medical sales career, I just was not a good employee. Like I just really wasn't, you know, they wanted me to do certain things that I felt like I was doing duplicate work. Mm. Um, they wanted me to do certain things where I felt like there were other processes that could have been more efficient. Right. And so I was just kind of like the rebel that was like, I'm going to do this the way that I want to do this. Yeah. And obviously it didn't work for the company. <laughs> and so, um, I just realized that I, because being in sales, you're you're growing a territory and you really do take ownership for that business and you really are growing the business. And that's kind of what you're doing the entire time. And so it really gave me that entrepreneurial spirit, that entrepreneurial bug that I don't think any other career would have done for me. So towards the end of that career, you know, I actually ran into a good friend of mine at a JU alumni event, which is where I went to college. And he's like, you know, have you ever thought about insurance and finance? And I was like, no, like that is not something I would ever do. I, you know, that's very far from, you know, who I am or what I'd ever want to do. But when I went in and just kind of learned more about the industry and I learned a lot about, you know, like why the rich stay rich, why the poor stay poor. And I think money and finances in general is an area that we don't get enough of in school. I think it's an area that I wish we could revamp our educational system to teach from a much younger age. And it's something I learned later in life, but wish I would have learned earlier. Probably in many cases through hard lessons and things like that. Very much so. That's how it is for most people, yeah. <laughs> many hard lessons. And I just honestly, I didn't think it was going to be a career path for me, but I said, you know what? Let me just do this part-time. And that's how a lot of insurance agents start. They start part-time. They keep their full-time job. So that's what I did. And I built it up, uh, fell in love with the industry, actually became a broker, ended up opening my own insurance office, you know, obviously got rid of the medical sales and got into the insurance to the point where so I opened my own 5,000 square foot office, recruited a ton of agents, trained agents, became a multiple six figure earner in the industry. And, you know, that was kind of my, 
my path and insurance and so that's a lot that we got yeah. into there yeah. let's maybe zoom back <laughs> out for a second because okay. you went through a lot of stuff pretty casually that i think is really impressive i'd okay. like to talk a little bit about how you did some of those things so i guess we could maybe go back to first getting into the industry obviously you kind of built it on the side at some point you probably decided to go full-time with it is that right yes so what was the telltale sign maybe that you decided to branch fully off and go full-time with that well one i didn't want to work for someone anymore and in insurance i was more so like an entrepreneur you could say because kind of like real estate i was under the company umbrella but you really become like the broker so there's brokers and agents in real estate same thing in insurance you have brokers and agents and so the agent like a lot of times in real estate starts part-time they can open their own brokerage right so that's kind of the same thing in insurance and for me, it was not only just not wanting to work for someone anymore, but I really did enjoy the whole process. Yeah. Um, and for me, business is a process. And if you fall in love with the process, that's the whole point of it. And so I, I did. I fell in love with the process of it. And it was just how do I grow? How do I scale the office, increase income as well? And I knew that also in medical sales, I would be capped. The most you can make in, in medical sales and, you know, maybe maybe a quarter million dollars, mm-hmm. right? And if you're the best. Yeah, if, if you're the best. And that's and that's a very small percentage, you know, 5 to 10% of the industry, whereas most are stuck at, you know, the 100,000s, you know, um, somewhere around there. And so for me, it was, if I'm putting in all this effort and work, why not put that same effort and work into something that I can still um, do the same amount of time, but I can scale myself to a multiple six, seven figure income. Right. And that was insurance and finance. And so you start realizing that you kind of branch off on your own. And then you mentioned that, you know, you kind of mentioned casually in passing that you build up to this point where you've got over a hundred agents under you. And I'm sure there had to be some big challenges that came with that. How did you go about even just bringing your first agent under you and what was what was that getting over that first hump like? And then how did that continue from there? Yeah. So my very first agent was actually a friend of mine. We would do these presentations where you would come, you would learn about the industry and, you know, they would say, OK, I want to get licensed. And so he was actually a good friend and he was looking for some different things, too, because he had a job that he didn't like anymore and wanted to kind of branch out as well. And so he was my running mate for a long time, for for many, many years. And I think that's so important too when you're switching careers or getting into business or anything is is to have a running mate. How would you describe that? I've never heard it put that way in, in yeah. those terms. So a running mate is somebody that you can be like a sounding board with. You can bounce ideas off of. You can, you know, grow together, learn together. We were studying for our license together. We were learning the industry together. We were role playing a lot because in sales, you're constantly role playing. You're back and forth, you're back and forth. And you got to do a fair amount of role play. Reviewing how to overcome objections, things like that. Yep, overcoming objections, sales presentations, prospecting for new clients and new agents even, if you're looking to grow the agency. And so we would do a lot of role play, a lot of back and forth in that. And, you know, that was kind of my first. And then from there, it was just talking to people. Hey, anyone that's looking for something part-time, somebody that, you know, wants to go into business for themselves, but they don't know what to do. And getting people that are, you know, hey, I want to make, you know, an extra few thousand dollars per month. 
well, hey, you know, we represent these really big companies over here. Uh, we've got several different companies that we represent. You can make, you know, an extra few thousand dollars a month with us. That was just kind of the beginning of it. And it grew from there. Very cool. So I think obviously over a hundred is a large amount. I think it might be interesting to focus on maybe a couple milestones along the way of that and how things shifted as you went. So we could start with how did things change when you got to around 10 people? That's a good question. So 10 people was pretty much, I would say, still small and intimate, still able to kind of like role play and bounce ideas and things like that. It was easier, I would say, with 10. I would do a lot of trainings with just us 10 and doing like early morning trainings like, hey, guys, we're going to do, you know, a training at 530 in the morning. You know, mm-hmm. before you go to work, come to the office, we'll role play, we'll, we'll learn, we'll, we'll go through these different things together. We did that. And that was kind of the beginning growing phases. And that was actually before I became a broker. So okay. I was acting like a broker before I actually became one. And I think that's important in business as well. Putting yourself into those shoes that you want to be in, yeah, in a way. Exactly, exactly. Okay. So 10, you're still able to maintain that kind of intimate setting. You're still able to do a lot of the role playing. What about 25? So 25 is still a good number. It's still it's still small. It's still intimate. You're still able to, um, you know, do those trainings and things like that. But it now you start to find your leaders, like meaning you start to find people that you can train faster than maybe somebody else. Yeah. So someone who just picks it up easy. Yeah. So as the numbers get bigger, you start to kind of hone down in on, okay, I'm at 25 now. I have you know, two people here that I can really, really lock onto and train and develop. So that's what we would say, like lock onto that person. So these are the more serious people. These are the people that um, pick up things faster. I can teach them. They're, they're coachable and coachability is a big thing because. What are some traits that show that or some things, some telltale signs to look for? Somebody who moves with the speed of instruction. So you teach them something or you critique or, or, or come up with something that you feel like they can improve and they do it. Yeah. So a lot of people think they're coachable because they listen, but then they don't implement. So you can listen all you want, but if you're not implementing and implementing fast, then it's very difficult to grow, especially in that type of environment where it's very competitive. And, um, especially, you know, if you're looking to get to a certain level in business, cause there's going to be people that are going to be more coachable than you and they're going to move faster than you. They're going to grow faster than you. Um, so that, that's a big one. I like that. I also really like this point of identifying these kind of internal, I guess, second leaders and focusing in on them. Because really, I would guess the challenge is if you're at 10, maybe even up to 25, you as one person can kind of dictate and and create the culture in a way. And yeah. you need to have a strong culture. But once you start getting past that point... You can only do so much to influence the culture unless you start giving, you know, a second, almost like, um, almost like if you've got a giant house and you have a Wi-Fi router on one floor mm-hmm. and you have to get those little extenders where you plug one up on the second floor, it pings off and yep. becomes a sounding board. And a very simple word for that is duplication. Yep. Who can, who can I duplicate to be just like me? And it's coachable that they can just literally talk like me, run appointments like me, train like me. Um, So it's all about duplication. Very cool. And then how did things start to change when it hit maybe 50? So 50, same thing. You you find more leaders. 
Um, and then those leaders then begin to be able to train other other people in, in the office. Right. There's more of the kind of duplication. duplication. Yep, that's all it is. So you, you just find more. The bigger the numbers get, the more it gets. And then bigger than that, it starts to become chaos. Mm-hmm. And the chaos is something that you you don't want to control. It's something that you just have to kind of go with the flow in. And you're going to find new problems. You're going to have um, more conflicts that come up. And um, you may not hear everything. But hopefully, um, if you've trained those leaders that, that, you know, are closer to me, if you've trained them, um, they you can just then, hope that culture will bleed through all yeah, the way down. Yeah, because at a certain point, you just you can't get to everyone. I mean, they'll hear you. And like I would train every, you know, three times a week and they would hear from me. But, um, you know, there's times where I'm not there. I don't hear as much. Yeah. You can only answer so many deep questions and things like that yep and then and then it becomes a game of okay i can't talk to everyone i'm gonna talk to my key guys and then my key guys can talk to you yeah you know what i mean and then if if there's a newer person that is very coachable and they are very um you know somebody who's very promising who can who can pick things up quickly and, and really get results fast um then that's somebody else that i would look on look to to lock on to yeah even though they're newer so you get that information from the people that I've already trained. So you're dealing with the chaos, accepting the chaos a little bit, doing the management that you can, but also continuing to do that locking in when it's when you identify those kind of microcosm people. That's exactly right. Very yeah, cool. Yeah. I love that. That's it's very interesting hearing just about how quickly that happened. What was what was the time horizon on that whole thing? Kind of from start to like. Person number one to person number over a hundred. Yeah, so I was um, I was an agent for two years. Actually, I'm sorry, two and a half years before I became a broker. Mm-hmm. So when I became a broker, um, yeah, I was a broker for I want to say a year and a half before I even got to my six figures. Mm-hmm. So I took a, I took a, I took longer than some, but still quicker than others. So yeah, everybody's on their own time horizon. Because um, you had started with the full time job, still doing yeah. that as well. Yeah, so I was doing both, and I have a daughter as well. Mm-hmm. So I was doing both. So I was, you know, full time medical sales, part time insurance agent, um, and juggling both. And then once I got rid of the medical sales, becoming full time. That full time was full time. I mean, you're talking sixty hours a week plus, and um, you know, it just kind of took off from there. Wow! So still feels like that's pretty quick to build such a big team and be able to learn all those lessons. Yeah, yeah. Well, I had, and that's the other thing. I had really, really good mentorship. I had really good leadership. I had really good people that I could learn from and pick up their mistakes and and, and mentorship. You know, people I just can reach out to and, and ask questions. And um, when you are showing results and you're coachable, they're going to be more likely to lock in on you, lock in on me. Right? You had exactly. probably someone up the chain really lock in on you. And from there, you were able to recreate that. Exactly. Yep. Very cool. Yep. Now, so we know that you went from that to what you do now. What did that look like? So you're in real estate now. You kind of operate in real estate investing and development. Mm-hmm. 
what obviously you had built up this big team for yourself. How did you decide to shift into that instead? Yeah. So a few things. One, um, I no longer liked the recruiting game. And I think I became more honest with myself about that because I was really stuck in this world of like, okay, I want to become a seven figure earner in insurance, but I can't do that unless I, you know, just like in real estate, if, if I don't have like a ton of agents under me, I can't, I can't scale to that level. And so, um, I didn't necessarily like recruiting anymore. Um, I didn't necessarily like the schedule that I was on, meaning I would have to train every Tuesday night, every Saturday morning, um, every Monday night we would do phone zone. So we would call, make a ton of calls in like a couple hours. And um, it just became, so in insurance, you can, you can build your book of business up to a certain point and you can sell it. So yes, I could have still done that. Um, but I, I didn't, I didn't resonate with that portion of it anymore. And the other thing was listening to, um, Alex Hermosi. We talked about him before and I, absolute stud. I love him. He's great. And I, I was listening to a video of his and he was talking about the differences between billionaires and millionaires. And he said, billionaires do not get themselves caught up in what they consider small peanuts. Meaning if they can't build if they can't create and scale a business to be able to sell it within let's say five to ten years then it's not worth it for them and and be able to kind of like step away from it Mm -hmm. and you can do that in insurance but because i wasn't willing to do the recruiting anymore there was it was impossible it's impossible for me to do that and so i said okay um there's no way i'm going to be able to scale this to the point where you know, I, I can get cause certain parameters you had to hit um, in order to be able to sell your book of business. And I wasn't willing to do the things that it took anymore to be able to scale it to that point to sell the, the book of business. And I also knew um, I can't step away either because I'm the face of it. Right. Right. And so when you're the face of it, if you, um, you know, if, if you're not showing up at 8 a.m., your, 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 your guys aren't going to show up at ADM. It's, it's about leading from the front. It's not, Hey, you guys do this and I'll do something different. Cause I just don't feel like it anymore. You have to be in the game and in the trenches with your, with your guys. Like it's, it's leading from the front. So if I say, you know, Hey, go sell 10 policies this week, I've got to go sell 10 policies first. And I just, there was otherwise this, the culture will disappear with you. Exactly. And so it just, it just became a thing of like something one, I didn't want to do anymore Two. Um, I couldn't scale it to be able to step away three. I was starting to think bigger in the sense of like, okay, I don't necessarily want to make seven figures anymore. I want to make eight, nine, 10 figures now. So what, what can I do that can get me to that point? And you did not see that path, the, the current path resulting in that goal. No way. Yeah. So, so why real estate? So real estate came up. So, um, my ex fiance, so my, my daughter's father actually, I uh, was a GC or is a GC. And um, back when I was in my medical sales days, I would actually work with him a lot on the construction side. Okay. And so I learned a lot about construction. I spent, you know, five, six years with him doing that. I mean, I would go to houses with them and I would, you know, help them lay floors or, you know, help them paint or, 
you know, just different things that, that I, and I learned the whole process of like how to flip a house. I learned, um, how to create a portfolio. And I also actually helped somebody else at the same time scale their portfolio to millions of dollars. And this is back in like 2008, 2009, 2010. And so I learned how to evaluate properties. I learned the construction side of it. I learned a lot about, um, you know, building that portfolio. And I really enjoyed it. My dad was actually also a real estate developer in Chicago. My brother is senior vice president of a real estate finance company. So, so it's in the family. It's in the family. And yeah. It's like, and I really enjoyed it then. I just didn't know that I could do it on my own. Gotcha. Until recently. And what told you that you could do it on your own? You know, um, I think when I had that mindset shift from insurance and looking at different things that I could do, um, and I started researching and reading books about it. And um, one of the actually the very first book I read was uh, Real Estate Invest, um, Financial Freedom Through Real Estate Investing. And don't I don't I don't remember the author, but it's a yellow book. And um, I that was the first book I read about it. And after I read that book, I was like, man, like I can do this. Um, I know about business. I know about systems. I know about processes. I know how to work with people. Um, I just have to, I know the construction side. I know how to build an, a portfolio. I, I've done it's it. like you have all these pieces. You just need to put them together. Yeah. yeah. So it, it's like this foundation that was building through those years. And now it's like, okay, boom, like I have all these tools in the tool belt. So let me use this. And by the way, I can go make hundreds of millions in real estate. Yeah. Right. There's a real estate billionaire. So if they mm -hmm. can do it, why can't I? Right. There's, there's nobody, there's not a real estate billionaire that looks like me. Why not me, right? Be the first. So there you go. So that's kind of, that was my thought process. So you move into real estate and what was the first, so how did the landscape of investing in real estate, working in real estate look for you at first? So first just uh, flipping. So just, you know, obviously a lot of groundwork on the business side of it because. Um, preparing yeah, to just, build yeah, something. Preparing. And I'm not somebody that gets caught. Um, and the analysis or paralysis by analysis, I'm somebody that just like wants to go. Like spending eight hours figuring out a logo. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. No, we don't do that. Yeah. We just, we just do it. <laughs> right. Just go. And so um, for me, it was initially just, you know, learning the process of like, okay, how do I find the lender? How do I, you know, find the perfect property? Because the real estate, real estate is, everything is always changing. Nothing's all, all, ever the same. And we've seen that specifically in real estate over the years where um, like what I did in 2008, 2009, 2010, it's a completely different market than it is today. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and even over the past couple of years, I mean, it's just changed completely. And so um, figuring out those markets and how to kind of maneuver in that new market um, was a big part of it. I kind of lost what I was saying, but. No, that's fine. Um, the next question I was going to ask is just, I guess, kind of zooming in on that one particular point. Yeah. What in the flipping market, particularly that you kind of started in, what are some particular things that you look for in? Because you mentioned identifying the types of things that make a property a good investment for that. What are some things you would look for in a flip that's maybe one of your first flips? The very first thing always is buying the buying right, what we call buying right. You got to buy the property under market value. Um, you got to be able to run the numbers. For me, I'm, it's all about numbers. If the numbers tell me no, then I'm not going to try to finagle them to make it tell me yes or vice versa. So um, 
definitely figuring out, you know, looking at a specific property, evaluating that property, but buying the property, right? Because you're going to make the money on the buy, not on the sale. So right. you're going to always make the money Interesting. on the buy. Okay. So trying to figure out what's below market value, does that just involve looking at kind of comps in the area and what they might have sold for recently? It's typically going to be a project that's going to need rehabbing. Um, so I go to wholesalers mostly. And wholesalers are interesting because they're like the boots on the ground of finding all the distressed properties. And yes, you can find some in the MLS and go through a realtor and all that other stuff. But like that's what wholesalers do. And so for me, I would just go on to Facebook groups. Um, there's a ton of real estate groups that you can find there's Yellowbird, there's, uh, you know, Jacksonville Real Estate, Florida Real Estate. I mean, there's a ton of them. And um, these wholesalers will post, you know, hey, I have this property. It's the purchase price is this, the rehab is this, and the ARV is this. And so I would just kind of initially before I kind of like jumped in, I would just say, okay, this is a new market. Let me learn this market. Let me evaluate these properties. And so I just got really, really good at evaluating properties. And I would do that like literally spend the entire day just looking at property after property, evaluating them. And then I got really good at um, zip codes and, you know, locations and, you know, what's a good price for this specific zip code. Gotcha. So just diving in deep, looking in the Facebook groups, figuring out, just learning the landscape completely. Exactly. Getting a feel for it. Yeah. It's all about the feeling. Now, what what did acquiring your first property that you flipped look like? So um, I went in with uh, one other person. So we call that a JV, so joint venture. Um, so I went in with one other person. We purchased the property for $95,000, um, which is really good, and rehabbed it, put about 130000 into it, a little over. Um, so all in a little over two hundred. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And then um, ended up renting it out long term and today that pop property is worth about a half a million dollars wow yeah when did you acquire that uh four years ago wow four, that's yeah, impressive four years ago so that was before i even like really went all in with it like the way that i am now mm -hmm. um and so that was just kind of like a like a little quick getting your toes in the water yeah, kind yeah, of thing quick in the toes in the water deal um and probably going in as a JV is a good way to do that because you've got a partner in the venture. You don't have to take on the entire workload of everything and the shared risk, of course. Exactly. For me, it was all about shared risk. <laughs> so would you recommend starting with a JV for anyone who wants to get into this? Absolutely. Yes and no. It depends. Um, if you're brand new, I'm actually going to do a video on this. If you're brand new getting into it, I would definitely go in as a JV with somebody who has experience, right? somebody who knows. So I call that partnering up. Um, so if you're the smartest person in the room, get out. So you want to learn from somebody who's been there, done that, and can kind of help you eliminate mistakes. If, if someone who, someone for whom this is not their first venture. Correct. Yeah. So definitely in that sense, if you're, if you're partnering with somebody who this is their first time, yeah, they can, they, you know, you guys can partner up on it, but you're going to, you're both going to essentially be, you know, on the same experience level, which, which is fine too. You, you'll just make mistakes together. So it just depends on what you're able to stomach 
mm-hmm. what you're able risk to, wise. Yeah. And, and, you know, kind of if you guys gel together and, um, you know, what your talents are, your strengths, your time, your money, your experience, your values, your principles, your vision, you know, all that stuff is important when you're looking at JVing. You mentioned a lot of things there. What are maybe the top three things you look for in a partner for a venture aside from the experience? Yeah. So, um, definitely somebody who has the same vision as you. It's, it's hard if, and when I say vision, I don't necessarily mean you, you can put vision into two different categories. You could put it into the category of what's your vision just for this specific house. Um, meaning, you know, one person, what's your exit strategy, right? One person may want to uh, flip this property. The other person may want to do a long-term hold on the property or a midterm hold. And that would be a pretty bad mismatch if you got down the road and you were ready to sell. They wanted to hold on to it a while and keep renting. Exactly. So big, big deal there. Um, but vision could also be, you know, what do you want to do long term? Because here comes also the time commitment. Because, you know, one person may be in startup mode, meaning they're hungry, they're grinding, they want to work, they're there. But the other person may be you know, their vision is they just want to kind of kick back. They just want the passive income. They don't really want to put in the work. Right. So if your visions are mismatched there, it's very difficult to come together. Yeah. You don't want to be in a situation, obviously, where someone wants to find a management company for something and the other person wants to be the management. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and that, you know, and that that's another one. I would say um, another one that's that's really important are your values and principles from a standpoint of like, what are your standards? What are your non-negotiables? And when I say standards, non-negotiables, I mean, you know, one person may be okay doing shoddy work. That That's their value and their principle. They're okay selling a house where, you know, the roof wasn't put on properly, right? Um, somebody else may not be okay with that. Their, their standard and their non-negotiable is no, we're going to do this right we're going to do this the right way. And so you got to get those questions out of the way in the beginning um, before you get into that deal as well, I think is so important because you don't want to be in a situation where um, you're just not aligned on, on your, on your, on your standards in general. So just getting into really deep transparency, almost going through a full interview of the person, even if you know him well, probably just getting all of that ironed out. Even more so if you think you know them well, especially friends, Mm -hmm. because you know, I've lost friends in business. Um, you kind of learn like really a lot of like who that person really is. Mm-hmm. The deeper that you go in. Once you see them held to the fire, kind of through difficult situations. Exactly. Yeah. Challenges. Yeah. You, you learn a whole new side of that friend. Yeah. Um, and, and I've lost friends in like the insurance world because of that. And now having that experience, you're probably able to rule out certain things where you would not go after the venture that could result in a lost friend and you just don't pursue that. Exactly. Exactly. I like that. So that was talking a lot about what to look for in a flip. I'd also like to talk about a little bit more about how what you're looking for in your real estate career has kind of shifted into, you said it's kind of shifted into a little bit more long term Mm -hmm. rather than the flip focus. So talking about more rentals, um, setting up like a lease for a family, maybe starting with single family houses. Is that kind of how you shifted from there? Yeah. So because the market is switching right now and I just don't want to get into a situation 
where um, with short-term rentals, you know, we're let's face it, we're in a recession. Mm-hmm. The media doesn't like to talk about it, but we are, and it's going to get worse. And um, I don't, if people aren't traveling for a specific period of time, that could be an issue on the short-term rentals. Right. Um, another issue on short-term rentals could be, you know, a, a lot of people, um, Airbnb, you know, changing their algorithms and people, a lot of, a lot of states and cities that have control over rules. Been hearing a lot about this, actually. There's many, many cities where a lot of people are losing their Airbnb privileges due to state regulations or that county, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're switching those rules. It's things like... Like counties dictating that you can only rent it a certain portion of the time or you have to live in it personally a certain portion of the time compared to how much you rent it out. Stuff like that, right? Yeah. And if you don't follow those rules, like you could have jail time. Yeah. And I just don't want to be in a situation where the county is dictating what I'm going to do now. Does that mean that, you know, politics or you know, change in rules or whatever can't change the flipping game or can't change the long-term rental game, especially for people in, uh, that are in states where, um, you know, maybe they're tenant friendly. Like I know uh, like Florida, um, we're landlord friendly, mm-hmm. but states like New York is more tenant friendly. So it's easy for those tenants to get away with things. And it's not as easy for the landlords to evict people as it is in Florida. Right. Right. And so um, you can get you can get into those situations where politics and rules and, and state and, and things like that play a big difference. But the key, the difference is like just increasing your chances in general. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like like just mitigating your risk just that much more. Understanding the state of the market and kind of pursuing the least risky avenue of that. For that time, which is for why, that time. Yeah. So which is why I say long term rentals, because. One, pe- a lot of people are going to need places to live. Um, Especially with uh, rent getting so out of control. Rent is going so high. Um, interest rates on purchasing is pricing a lot of people out of the market where they were able to purchase so much house or so much house for this amount of money. But because that interest rate is higher now, they, they can afford less of a house and they don't want to do that because it's not their dream home. So they'd rather rent. Um, and that also allows a lot of those renters to um, actually uh, uh, or the landlords to actually have more quality renters as well, because these are high income earners that they just can't purchase the house that they want. They, you know, a few January of this year, they were able to purchase a house for seven hundred and fifty thousand. But now they're able to purchase a house for four hundred thousand and it's not up to their standard. And so a lot of renting, a lot of people that are renting now are, are now in, are, are now forced or people that wanted to buy are now forced to rent. But now that's a quality renter because they could afford a 750 before they just can't now. Yeah. So and it's a good time to be in the long-term rental game is what you're saying. Great time. And the rents are going up. Mm-hmm. Which is know? good. So it's unfortunate again. for, for, you know. For the renters. For renters, but they have a, they have to have a place to stay. Yeah. They have to, and, and it, they're not going to come down that much more Yeah. over time. So um, a, 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 if you're looking for something, just evaluating that as well, there's the 1% rule on long-term renting. So like meaning if the house is $100,000, um, you want to be able to rent it out for at least $1,000. A month. Yeah. Okay. $200,000, $2,000. So that's a very generic rule, and it could it could change based on the market as well. Um, 
but I hadn't heard a, that before. That you would call point. that applicable to today's conditions? Yeah. Okay. But that number is actually higher now. So it's not one percent now. And some and sometimes it's it's maybe a little bit more, maybe like one and a half percent. Um, so you're you're seeing a a, a, a a very interesting change, but I think even that's going to change because in some markets it's the opposite. It's no longer one percent; it's less than a percent. Mm, so okay. it just depends. And I was saying this to somebody earlier, where everybody wants to put real estate under like one market, one umbrella, and it, there's the macro and the micro, mm -hmm. and you really have to go like based on your individual location of where you're at. Because yeah. Jacksonville, Florida market is completely different than LA, mm -hmm. completely different than Chicago or New York, right? So um, just playing to that and making sure that you know that market as well and, and sticking to those rules, so to speak. For someone in Jacksonville, since we're in Jacksonville right now, would you, in your opinion, would you say it's more at that 1% or is it a little lower, a little higher? A little higher. A little higher, a little okay. Higher. So it's like- We've had a lot of people moving into Jacksonville oh lately. God, it's it's crazy. crazy. There's so many- um, yeah, you're a little bit higher in some areas, so like, you know, the areas like mm -hmm. South sides and things like that, you're higher than 1%. Um, and then there's some areas where you're just about that 1%, but yeah, Jacksonville is a great market for long-term rentals. Okay. Right well, sounds like you're in the right game then. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the shift in why. So that's talking about single family, long-term rentals, which is kind of how you got started with it. You mentioned before that you have aspirations to get more into multifamily mm -hmm. long-term rentals. Yes. What are some of the challenges that come with that? I mean, I would imagine obviously having the capital, you have less of a selection of partners that you can go in on that with because of capital needs and just experience level needs. Probably it's obviously way riskier. What are some things that you've encountered as you've tried to move into that? Yeah, actually, everything that you've said, um, very, very good uh, observations there. So um, with large multifamily, which is where I want to go and I'm not there yet, um, if you're going to do like a duplex or a triplex or a quadruplex, it's going to be the same amount of work as, as finding a 100-unit building. The difference is the capital, mm -hmm. right? So what I'm working on right now is creating a capital fund, um, a 506C. So I actually just did a video on this. The difference between a 506B and a 506C. Um, and so I'm going to go 506C because it's going to allow me to market that specific deal. So like in a 506B, you're not able to um, market the deal. You can market the brand. You can market you know, what you're doing, but you can't be very specific on it. On, on the media. actual aspects of the deal that you're advertising. Yeah. So like in a 506, in a 506B, I can't say, you know, hey, I'm raising money for this hundred unit deal, you know, in Riverside and Jacksonville. I can't say that in that on social media, but I can in a 506C. So I can market the actual In a B, deal. you could probably say, I have this company. We do real estate investing. We're looking for investors. Exactly. Okay. Yep. And then, but the good thing about the B is that you can have non-accredited investors and accredited investors. Uh, okay. An accredited investor, I forget exactly what this is. It's um, It has to do with like... With yearly income or overall net worth, right? For what are both. What are the uh, thresholds for that? Two hundred thousand dollar income, a million dollar net worth, or if you're married, three hundred thousand together, a million dollar net worth. 
Okay, and you have to have both of those. You and have you to check have out to both have of those. Both. Yep, and then in both you in the in the B you um, can pretty much just ask for documents, um, but you have to you have to be the SEC is going to want way more documentation on like what what it is, and a five hundred six or you know what they have to make sure that they are. But in the five hundred six C, you can use um, like a verifying like a third party verifying company that will go in and, and verify those things. So you do have to do okay. diligence and make sure that they are accredited. But as long as they're accredited and that's checked off by the third party, they're good. So they're it's probably good. easier to find them. And, Way easier. And they're going to be more attracted to it probably because they can hear about it specifically. Exactly. Yep. That's interesting. And I can use social media. So that's the biggest thing. It's if, if, if Now, if I had already had a base of, you know, people that have – Money. I mean, I know people that would want to invest in it, but not to the point where I want to raise $20 million. Right. Right. So I don't have that base. So it's going to be easier to be able to use social media to do that than it would be to just kind of go to them individually because I don't I just don't have that pool. Have you heard of um, creator properties on YouTube? No. So it's um, do you know who Graham Stefan is? Uh -huh. The finance guy? Yeah. It's him and um, this other guy, Ryan Pineda. Yeah, that I love they, Ryan. yeah. So they are both heavily into real estate investing, and they actually started a company together. I was listening to an interview about it, where it's like a real estate investment trust. And I would guess now that I know that distinction, I guess would guess it's a is it five hundred one or five hundred six? I think I'm thinking like a charity thing with that. Five hundred six C, I think, is what it is. So it's yep. only accredited investors, but they advertise through their large platforms and take on these huge deals right. with all these people, all these accredited investors. That's exactly it's kind of like the same kind of principle. Yeah. It's the exact same thing. I'm, I'm just, they're just a little bit further ahead than I am right now. So you're kind of, yeah. <laughs> so, but that's where I'm going. Yeah. Very cool. So you're trying to kind of build up this base, start kind of advertising it through social media. So, so you, you said you do want to start out with of creating it now, but go mm -hmm. ahead. Sorry. So you said you do want to start with the 506C and go straight to that, though. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to go straight there because I don't I don't have the base. Um, and you can go from a B to a C as long as you haven't, um, like, as long as you haven't gotten investors yet. You can go from a C to a B as long as you haven't advertised it yet. Okay, interesting. So I'm going to, so I'm saying, okay, why not just, just go straight to the C and if you want to be there eventually. Yeah, and just be done with it um, just to be able to advertise, honestly. So what are some – obviously, you're, you're creating it right now, but just kind of thinking ahead. I like to always kind of think about future aspirations on this show. What are some visions that you have for the way that advertising that will start to look? So as I'm creating the social media content, it's all about, you know, gaining trust and credibility so it'll take time, um, but just, you know, continuing to put the content out there, continuing to let people know who I am, continuing to network. Um, I also have a networking group that I um, do in Jacksonville. We meet, you know, once a month. It's, you know, awesome. It's really fun. And so just continuing to connect with people, continuing to get, you know, the name out there of what I'm doing, continuing to gain the credibility um, and then eventually being able to, you know, pull all of that together at the at the right time to be able to raise you know, you know, multi-million dollar funds for specific properties. Very cool. So I, 
I'm just kind of seeing it all come together here because, as I know, we were talking about this a little bit off air and through our mutual connection. Andy, you're doing a lot of content marketing, kind of organic content marketing. So right now for you, it's about building that base by just showing your expertise and your knowledge in the field as you continue to kind of build up capital. Eventually, you'll have the capital, you'll have the base. You can bring those together and bring in those accredited investors. Exactly. Very cool. Yes. That's exactly it. <laughs> Very cool. That's that's really exciting stuff. I'd, I maybe trying to hit you up if I ever become a credited investor. Right. So, yeah. I'll become one for sure. Yeah. So, and this is a selfish question. Um, I am thinking about getting into my first venture, and I happen to be looking at a deal right now that's actually out of state. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that you would? recommend is is that something that you would recommend against i guess is more my question or is that is it not as big of a deal that you don't that you're not there and um and present for it if you have a good partner to go in on it with i was gonna say it's all about the team and the trust that you have with them so as long as you do your due diligence any market is i mean you know Honestly, any market, good or bad, is is okay to do out of state as long as you, you know, do your due diligence, you have the team, you know, you've got the realtors that you trust that can tell you different things about that specific market, um, you know, go see it and kind of see, see, you know, what you're thinking of. But yeah, no, people invest out of town all the time. You just have to know what you're looking for and, and know that your market is different than that market. So you really have to study the trends of that market. Um, Why are you in that market? Meaning, what's the job growth in that market? Why are people there? Um, If you're in a market where it's mainly dominated by one industry or one big company, that's difficult because what if that one company decides to leave? Mm -hmm. You know, then then you're gonna lose a lot of the, the population there. Now you're talking just one house, you know, which is which is not as risky. But if you're talking about building an entire portfolio there, that could become very risky. Sure. Or if you're talking about if you were talking about a short term rental kind of situation, that'd be a really big deal. Exactly. If you lose the draw to that area, then you lose the market. Exactly. So really look at the demographics behind why you're investing in that market, I think is important. Um and just, you know, if, if, if it all looks good and, and you've got multiple industries, multiple companies, people moving there, you know, it's it's going to be a solid, good location, that sort of thing. Go for it. As long as you got the team to, to help you while you're away. Why not? Cool. That's good to hear. Yeah. Well, on, an, on kind of a different note, another thing we had talked about a little bit off air is the kind of entrepreneurial mindset. You mentioned earlier in the interview how you kind of realized that you had that through some of your experience and that led you down a totally different career path that it seems like has worked out really well for you. Mm-hmm. You wanted to talk a little bit about the mindset versus the skill set. Yeah. So I used to tell my agents and in insurance all the time, and this is true for business in general, that entrepreneurship is a, is a mindset first and a skill set second. I can teach you the skills all day long. I can teach you, you know, the how to's, the ABC's, the one, two, threes, but if you're not being strong mentally, it's going to be very, very difficult in entrepreneurship, especially in real estate, because the first time something goes wrong, how do you react to that? Right. Um, the first two years in any business, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. And so how do you, how do you, you know, how do you deal with that? Things are going to happen. Deaths are going to occur. 
you know, illnesses could come up, physical limitations. How, how do you mentally... Unforeseen market circumstances. Exactly. How do you mentally push through that? Now, you can know what to do all day, every day. But if you're not keeping your mind sharp and you're not able to push through those times mentally, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to succeed in business. Like, you just might as well pack it up and go home. Um, so that's where, you know, we would uh say drill for will we drove for skill but we drove for will a lot in insurance because um what do some of those drills look like so it's just um you know how how long are people willing to stay how 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 long are they willing to to role play we talked about that you know how how much are they willing to um you know the sacrifices in general especially in business like what are you going to sacrifice um, are people willing to sacrifice? Or are they not willing to sacrifice? Because there's going to be times like when I was building the insurance, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of this. So I was actually going for um, like a director promotion or something. And you have to submit so much business in a specific period of time in order to get that done. And it was it's a three month process. And so once you start, if you don't make it by the end of that 90 days, you have to start all over again. Wow. Okay. And so at the time I, um, was actually supposed to be, well, I was a bridesmaid in my best friend at the time's wedding and she was having a, um, she was having a, uh, a bachelorette party in Atlanta, but the same time her bachelorette party was the same time where I was on my last like two days of that 90 day period. Oh, and man. I didn't have all the numbers in yet. And so if oh. I didn't have those numbers in yet, I'd have to start over. So guess what sacrifice I had to make? Sorry, girl, I can't make your bachelorette party. You know, she kicked me out of her wedding. Oh, she man. kicked me out of her wedding because I couldn't make the bachelorette party. Jeez. But for me, I was, you know, I have a family. This is important to me. Yeah. My business, my career, everything I've worked for, I'm not going to you know, go risk all that just to go have a, a, a weekend of drinking. Like I'll be at your wedding, mm -hmm. but I don't need to go party with you in Atlanta for your bachelorette. I'm so sorry, but I just, I can't, right. This is important. So that's a sacrifice. That's a, that's a drill for will. Are you mm -hmm. willing to do it? Are you willing to sacrifice? That's one. Um, you know, this is crazy. I got into a car accident one time and this is a little bit more extreme, I think, but, um, <laughs> I got into a car accident once and this is when I was not a broker yet. I was an agent, but I was the director in the office and I was stepping in for one of the brokers that was out of town like that week or whatever. So I was the one that had to like step up and like run everything. And I get into a car accident. I ended up being okay. Um, but I went to the office after that accident instead of saying, you know, I, I'm just, I'm just going to go home because I got into this accident. I was okay. Um, I, I hit like a median on JTB but I was still okay. Airbags deployed. I had some like burns or whatever, but I, I was mentally like, okay, I can do this. So I, I went to the office still. I gave my presentation. I had to show up, right? So that's a drill for Will. Are you still willing to show up even though things happen? And so that's the mental versus like the skill. Yeah. Because if I might know what to do, but if I don't have the mentality to go do it, nothing's going to happen. Where do you think that mentality comes from for you personally? Um... <laughs> Uh, definitely childhood, I think, um, for sure. Childhood. My, my dad was the same way he was, he was diagnosed with cancer. He had a four year battle. He had to relearn how to walk. Um, wow. this is somebody, he was a real estate developer in Chicago 
And um, he went through, you know, probably the strongest man I ever knew. Um, but yeah, he one day just couldn't walk just right. out of the blue, had a tumor on his spine, just couldn't walk, went to the hospital, walked into the hospital, could not walk back out. Wow. And the doctor's like, it's two o'clock in the morning. What are you still doing here with your pants? Like halfway down, he couldn't stand up and he didn't know why. But he was still trying. And he was still trying. And so like he, so anyway, long story short, we found out he had the tumor. We found out he had developed cancer. Um, he was in the wheelchair. He relearned, you know, they said, okay, you know, make funeral arrangements. You're not going to make it that whole thing. You're not going to make it past three months. Most people don't. So not only did he make it past three months, he did relearn how to walk. He went from a wheelchair to a, a, a walker, to a, a quad cane, to a single cane, to no cane, wow. never a complaint out of his mouth. He just did it. Like it was, he was so strong. Um, it, you know, and it was to the point for me, you talk about like will versus skill, like he ended up passing away. And I don't know if this is cause I was like in denial or what, I don't know, but he passed away and I went to school the very next day because wow. it was like, my dad never complained. Like I still have to show up. You right? wanted to embody that yeah, persona. Like just show up. And so, um, so I think from that and then also, you know, fast forward to business, I just had some really good mentors. I just had some really good people that were in my corner teaching me, training me. Um, they gave me a lot of that like strong, like business mindset to just like, to just do it and just mm -hmm. like be there and, and, and show up and be present. And so um, I think between, you know, my dad and, and, you know, the way that he responded to his situation and the mentors that I had, it, it really gave me like that mental toughness. Yeah. Um, to, to be in business and kind of go through some of the things that I did. That's awesome. Now, one other thing that you wanted to mention a little bit, we talked about off air was vision and what having vision means to you. Yeah. So you can't do anything with like, without like your long-term view on like where you're going. Like, it's kind of like, you know, you're going to get on a plane, but like, where are you getting on a plane to? Like, you got to know like what that final destination looks like. Yeah. So if you don't know that, you're just aimlessly flying in the air. You know what I mean? So um, definitely beginning with the end in mind. I know it's so cliche, but it's so true. Um, and that end may change along the way. You know, that vision, you know, for me, as we've seen, it's it changed for me in terms of industries, but it didn't change for me in terms of like what I want my life to look like. Mm -hmm. Right. And so um, I think if you can expand your mindset, um, know what that vision is. It also helps you along those times where you do go through those bad things. Cause I think too, like anytime you set out in business to do anything, stuff's going to go wrong. The opposition's going to be like, are you sure you want this? Universe is going to test you. Mm -hmm. You sure you want it? You sure? You sure? Like, okay, let me throw this obstacle. Oh, he made it past that. She made it past that. Okay, cool. Let me throw another obstacle. You sure you want this? I don't know if you want this. Somebody's going to stab you in the back. Right. Somebody's going to do something and um, you have to be able to like get through those things. And I think that vision kind of pulls you through because you know where you're going. So it doesn't matter if things something that can always bring bit. you back into center. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's so important. What are a couple things that you use to help outline your personal vision? Um, it's what it's just the things that I want. Like, what do I want life to look like? You know, um, where do you want to be in three, five, 10 years kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. Like, like, 
what things do I want to be dealing with? What things do I not want to be dealing with? Mm-hmm. And being very honest with myself about those things. Um, and then kind of, you know, seeing, you know, and, the, and then setting that up. So, like, if, you know, certain house that I want to build, right? Like, what do I need? Well, like, what am I willing to do to, to have that, right? And, and so I'm able to, because I know what that looks like, I know, like, what I'm willing to do to get there. Makes sense. So like, um, so yeah, I think that's important. Very cool. Now, um, I have a couple repeat questions. Like we talked about a little bit off air, um, that I like to ask in every interview. One question is, you know, you've had a couple pretty distinct moments in your career that we've talked about so far that have taught you many things that we've also talked about. Um, if you could go back and talk to a young Bianca, she was kind of first, maybe just first becoming an entrepreneur and deciding to to work for yourself what are a couple things that you would tell her to do differently yeah for one I would say learn you know more of like who you are in general because I think for me um I didn't necessarily know exactly who I was I think a lot of people at my age when I started were more clear on that than I was um and so getting to learn more about who you are is learning your likes, your dislikes, what you want, what you don't want, what you're willing to put up with, what you're not willing to put up with, um, your non-negotiables, your standards. So I think if I, I would definitely go back and ask myself those harder questions because I think it could prevent me from, you know, different paths or different maybe decisions that I made and, and that sort of thing. I think that's definitely one of them. Um, and that also allows you to, um, you know, like I said, learn more about who you are. The other one would be to invest younger. Um, if I could have done that, like if, if I could have invested earlier, like in my, you know, twenties, like right after college or any of that, I definitely would have done that for sure. Now for you, would that have looked like real estate investing? If you could bring that back in general, any kind of investing, just yeah. getting your toes wet at least Yeah, and invest earlier, sooner. Um, and I know this is number three, but also like be more urgent. Yeah. Just be more urgent about things like success loves speed. Mm-hmm. And so I think if I would have been more urgent and, and being young and just thinking that I had so much time, you know, you blink and you're so much older and. Um, I think if I could have moved faster in certain things or made mistakes faster, failed faster, learned faster, read faster, you know what I mean? Um, you know, obviously it could have been different outcomes. Very cool. I love both or all three of those things. I think those are really great. And um, that leads me into my next question. So the show is called Profession Session. Obviously, I talk to professionals and kind of figure out what their careers have looked like. What does being a professional mean to you personally? So being a professional to me means showing up, uh, I think. And we talked a little bit about this, but um, there's going to be times the difference between successful people and non-successful people is they feel the exact same way, but they just act differently, right? So like, you know, somebody who has major success has the same feelings of like, man, I just really don't feel like doing this today. 
right? Or I really just don't feel like talking to that person. Or I really don't feel like making that call. Or I really don't feel like, you know, going to that property or whatever the case may be. They both experience the same thing. The difference is this one just decides, okay, I don't feel like it. So I'm just not going to do it. Right. Whereas this one says, nope, I made a commitment to this. I have to show up. I'm going to do the things I don't feel like doing. And so therefore they become more successful than everyone else because they're willing to do the things that other people are not willing to do. And they're, they're willing to show up no matter how they feel. And I think that's uh, the most important thing that a professional can do. I love that because they ultimately have that bigger purpose. They know it's for a reason and it's going to take them where they want to be. Their vision. That's beautiful. Well, is there anything else that you would want to go over? Anything else you could think of that you'd like to leave the audience with? No, I mean, um, I think, you know, anyone that has the drive and the purpose and the vision to, to do something, I think should just do it. Stop thinking about it so much and just go out there and make it happen. And just know that there are people that you can bounce ideas off of. There are people that have been uh, where you are now. So also don't feel like you're alone in this and don't be alone in it. Don't do it alone. Like go find somebody that you can, um, you know, learn from or somebody that you can even partner with. Mentors, peers. And uh, there was a term you mentioned earlier like the kind of the right hand man, um, running mate. your running mate. Yeah. yeah. Find a running mate, find some peers, networking groups, mentors. A hundred percent. If you, you can do that, you, you know, just, just, and then just stay the course, you know, just stay the course. Awesome. Well, Bianca, thank you so much for being on here. This has been really awesome. Yeah, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I Absolutely. enjoyed it as well. <laughs> it was very cool. And you can find all of her information in the show notes. If you're listening on audio or the description if you're watching on youtube this has been profession session stay tuned for future episodes and until then signing off thanks so much for tuning into profession session i'm your host brody vinson stay tuned for new episodes every week and short clips of deep dives into specific topics that i put out on different social media channels we could be found on youtube instagram linkedin facebook tiktok all major podcast platforms you can find my guest in the details of this video or podcast and if you happen to know a young standout business owner professional or entrepreneur that you would think would be a good fit for profession session, DM me or get in contact with me anywhere and just let me know. And they could be the next to tell their story here. Until next time, again, this has been Profession Session. Stay focused, stay hustling, and stay networking.